welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. Uh, we've had uh, a pleasant surprise recently. Yeah. Yeah. We've gotten a, an, an increase in listens lately. Yes. Which was... Which is really fun. And a pleasant surprise. Oh, of course. And also a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. So, welcome yeah, welcome to If listeners. this is your first time listening to us, um, it's fun that you jumped in at episode 129. Um, sure. I mean, no time like the present, you well, know? sure. So yeah, if you haven't listened to us before, um, we usually take turns t- picking a topic and then we kind of take a deep dive into that topic and kind of teach the other person about that. And then at the end, we have a 10-question uh, quiz, which may or may not be related to the topic that we just talked about. Yeah, and it's usually something uh, fun and creative, or hopefully the opposite of whatever terrible or horrifying topic that we had, i.e. our pre- previous month of Dictator December. <laughs> Unless that's why we got a boost in listeners. <laughs> <laughs> all, of these, all of these. In which case, welcome, dictators. Yeah, welcome, dictators. We do not condone what you do or what you believe in, but you know what? A listen's a listen, and I'm not going to be picky, you know? <laughs> And also, uh, if I recall correctly, Julia, this is a great episode to jump into. I hope so. We'll uh, see. I have been looking forward to this topic of yours for uh, weeks, Excellent. ever since you mentioned it to me. So. Excellent. So yeah, it's it's 2020, clear vision. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We're going we're gonna to do some learning and laughing and... Loving. Loving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I decided to pick a topic about which I previously knew nothing it, that's a great way to go. So I'm going. I went into this with fresh eyes. I'm so excited. Today we're gonna enter the Wu Tang Clan. I love that so much. I was. You may as well have reached across the table and slapped me when you told me. I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna do this next," and you were like, "I'm gonna do the Wu Tang Clan," and I was like, "What?" And you really did your due diligence. You put I some time into this. I have done a lot of research, folks. Yes. All right. First of all. I watched the Showtime four-part documentary series, Wu-Tang Clan of Mikes and Men, that oh, came oh. out in May 2019. Um, it was filmed to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the group. And actually, there's also a dramatized Hulu series called Wu-Tang, an American Saga, which came out um, on Hulu in September 2019. Um, it portrays a fictionalized account of the formation of the Wu-Tang Clan over 10 episodes. But I decided I was going straight to the source. Yeah, I was going to watch the documentary. Good. Good for you. So I watched the documentary. I read some chapters in some books. Wow. I read some websites. <laughs> I listened to a lot of music. Primary sources. I am I am here, folks. Wow. I am your as of this moment, just for just for one tiny moment in the blip of the timeline of the universe, <laughs> I am your expert on the Wu-Tang clan. That's very exciting to me as a co-host of this podcast that I am sitting in the presence of the current expert. <laughs> Of the Wu Tang Clan, this is. I can't wait to learn at your feet. So, so right off the bat, um, the term MC mm-hmm. it can mean master of ceremonies, um, which is usually the only person at a gathering that was allowed to use a microphone. It could also stand for microphone controller or mic checker. Okay. Um, it is also the general term for a skilled rapper. And to be a true MC means being able to perform under any circumstance to be the ultimate performer. And an MC masters the moment and makes every move appear deliberate. And I realized as I read the definition that you can tell I am. The whitest white oh, girl. Oh, we are uh, rivaled only by your good friend here, Lauren, 
also one of the whitest white girls. And I am very aware <laughs> and I apologize in advance if yes. I mess anything up. Please mm-hmm. let me know. Um, I'm happy to take feedback on this, especially because this is a topic that I yeah that I started from scratch, basically. Yeah, exactly. All right. So if you are an expert, too, and you already own the complete Wu-Tang discography and you have a relevant tattoo somewhere on your person and you just wanted to make sure that I got the names of the members right, um, here they are. Okay. So right off the bat, you have Riza, Jizza, Old Dirty Bastard, Ghostface Killa, Method Man, Raekwon, Inspector Deck, Master Killa, and You God. And then later on, you had Capadonna. So uh, now you can go ahead and forward to the sparkly quiz music if you want. But if you want to hear the whole story... Yeah. Here we go. Buckle in. So picture it. Oh. Staten Island. Ooh. Late 1980s. Oh. <laughs> I know. Your favorite of the boroughs. Yeah. Um, so the Park Hill housing complex, which is located in the Clifton neighborhood on Staten Island, had become the site of steadily increasing crime and drug abuse beginning in the early 1970s. By the late 1980s, it had gained the nickname of Crack Hill due to the many arrests for possession and or sale of crack cocaine that were taking place in and around the development. The bulk of the Park Hill neighborhood had been built in the 1960s um, during New York City's plan for urban renewal projects, and the majority of its residents were African American. Mm -hmm. The complex consisted of 15 acres of six-story brick apartment buildings. Um, Hearing from former residents doesn't exactly paint the most glowing portrait, but kids of all ages in this complex played outside, listening to music, DJing, breakdancing, designing graffiti, and doing all kinds of other activities that would later come to define hip-hop. So in the early 20s, um, cousins Robert Diggs, Gary Grice, and Russell Tyrone Jones formed a group named Force of the Imperial Master, later known as the All In Together Now crew. So Gary and Russell lived in Brooklyn, but would come to Staten Island to visit their cousin Robert. Each of the three members recorded under an alias. Gary Grice was the genius. Robert Diggs was Prince Rakim, or the scientist, and Russell Jones was the specialist. The group never signed to a major label, but they caught the attention of the New York City rap scene through their homemade tapes. By 1991, the genius and Prince Rakim were signed to separate record labels, but the labels seemed to have strong-armed them into doing some songs that they didn't really feel. Um, So, for example, Prince Rakim's first single was called Ooh, I Love You, Rakim. Um, (laughs) Like, he was like this real ladies' man, and the Showtime documentary shows parts of this music video from 1991, and it is very 90s it is so 90s it's so he you know he's all dressed in early 90s and Mm -hmm. all the ladies have that bright makeup on and the big hair and Mm -hmm. like the shoulder pads and it's like ooh, we love you rakim (laughs) and it's like trying to he's like yeah all the ladies love me and this is when you listen to his later stuff you're like that that was not that was not really (laughs) his vibe yeah oh boy so it didn't go so well for Prince Rakim, didn't go so well for, for the genius. Um, so the cousins refocused their efforts and they gave themselves some new nicknames. So the genius became Jizza, which is G-Z-A, pronounced Jizza. Okay. And Prince Rakim became Rizza. Oh, sure. R-Z-A. Um, Russell Jones became Old Dirty Bastard or ODB. Rizza said that he knew the best rappers on Staten Island and he wanted to put a home-cooked meal of hip-hop of real people together. Mm. The early 90s rise of West Coast music shifted mainstream hip-hop visibility away from New York City and Rizza decided to change all that in the early 90s. Mm. So Rizza began collaborating with Dennis Coles, who was later known as Ghostface Killa. Oh, love it. They decided to create a hip-hop group whose ethos would be a blend of Eastern philosophy picked up from kung fu movies, 5% Nation teachings from the New York streets, and comic books. So oh, cool. 5% Nation is 
an American revisionist movement which split from the Nation of Islam in 1963. Mm. So this movement rejected being called a religion, um, preferring instead to be known as a culture and a way of life. And its teachings are referred to as supreme mathematics, which you'll hear over and over um, you know, when they give interviews and they, and they talk mm. about you know, Wu-Tang. They're always talking about the supreme mathematics. Okay. Okay. Cool. So Wu-Tang Clan assembled in late 1992 with RZA as the de facto leader and the group's producer. RZA, an old dirty bastard, adopted the name for the group after the film Shaolin and Wu-Tang. So in contemporary China, Chinese martial arts styles are generally classified into two major groups. You have Wu-Dang, which is named after the Wu-Dang Mountains, and Shaolin, named after the Shaolin Monastery. Mm Mm-hmm. Riza said that Wu-Tang was, quote, the best sword style of martial arts, and the tongue is like a sword, and so I say that we have the best lyrics, so therefore we are the Wu-Tang Clan. Love it. The group also developed backronyms for their name, including mm-hmm. Witty, Unpredictable Talent and Natural Game. Okay. <laughs> and Wisdom of the Universe and the Truth of Allah for the Nation of the Gods. I feel like I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a backronym. It yeah, wasn't like... Yeah, the actual thing, but it's fun when they can do that to make it fit. So the group pulled together $300 to record their first track at Firehouse Studios, and the song Protect Your Neck was released independently on Wu-Tang Records in 1992. Mm-hmm. And the song made them the most talked about new act in New York City's underground and announced a new brand of hardcore hip-hop. And um, in the documentary, they talked to some of their former management mm-hmm. who were like, okay, here's what we did. Like, we would send someone into a record store to like ask for the new Wu-Tang song and they'd be like, we don't have that. And then they would have somebody else come back in and be like, do you guys have that new Wu-Tang song? <laughs> and they'd be like, no. And then somebody would come in like playing the Wu-Tang thing on their boombox, and people would gather around and be like, yeah, this is great. And they'd be like, yeah, we should buy some of this. And it was, so it was like, like guerrilla really, marketing. Yeah. And yeah. it worked. <laughs> yeah, of course. They would also like, um, early on they would kind of show up at radio studios, like a, co- like a college radio station or something like that with the album and be like, you should play this. Wow. And they'd be like, well, okay. okay. <laughs> Man, we should do that with our podcast. Why haven't we done that? Well, maybe not with radio stations specifically, because that's kind of we going a little... We should show up at the University of Rochester, <laughs> banging on the glass door, be like, you should play we have a thumb podcast. drive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A thumb drive. You should play our podcast on your radio station. What? <laughs> I'm sure your 3 a.m. time slot is open. Yeah, of course it is. So Riza and the management, including his brother Divine, wanted to make sure that the group's members wouldn't be saddled with exclusive contracts with a particular record label. He wanted them to be able to launch future solo projects. So there was a little bit of difficulty in finding a record label that would sign the Wu-Tang Clan while still allowing each member to record solo albums with other labels. Okay. Um, Steve Rifkin at Loud Records agreed to all of this in 1993. So Loud would get the first option to sign a solo artist, but then they would be allowed to talk to other studios. So... Mm. If you were like, I'm going to go out on my own, Loud could say, okay, I would give you this much money, and then you were free to shop around and then still pick I see. Okay. the best thing. But that's, that's a nice deal. Yeah. And, yeah. It was, and this was pretty pretty rare for those times, especially when labels like owned Oh, yeah, you. like owned people mm-hmm. for like decades. So signing with Loud Records, everybody agreed, that led to the November 1993 release of their debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang, parentheses, 36 chambers. Okay. Yes. All right. I have heard of this. <laughs> yes. We've heard of this. Yes. Um, so the album loosely adopted a Shaolin versus Wu-Tang theme, dividing the album into Shaolin and Wu-Tang sections. So also okay. um, when it was on a cassette tape, it was different sides. Oh, sure. Later yeah, yeah. when it was released as CDs, they were released as different CDs. So 
Its success established the group as a creative and influential force in the mid-1990s hip-hop, allowing Old Dirty Bastard, Jizza, Rizza, Raekwon, You God, Method Man, and Ghostface Killa all to negotiate solo contracts after oh, okay. Red. Mm-hmm. So Rizza is the de facto CEO of their musical tribe for its first five years. This was his five-year plan. Mm-hmm. He called all the shots and produced all the albums. In return, he promised that each member would become a famous MC in his own right. So instead of nine guys competing for the spotlight, the clan would take their turns strategically, each earning as much money as possible, which would then feed back into the success of the Wu-Tang Clan as a group and for each of its members. Oh my God, that's like just really smart It's economics. very smart. <laughs> So Rizzo viewed this business plan as a high-stakes game of chess. Um, he started doing market research, he realizing the power of good branding. Mm-hmm. So from day one, Wu-Tang had a distinctive logo. Can yes. you picture it? Yes, absolutely. So it's this iconic stylized W shape. Mm-hmm. And that was pushed across as many platforms as possible and stamped on every release. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wu-Tang worked its brand in every arena, famously establishing a wide business portfolio. The W logo was designed by one of their producers, Mathematics, who was paid $400 for the logo by Reza. Oh. By 1995, the group already had a devout cult following, and they launched their own fashion label, Wu-Wear. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. That's cool. It initially started as a way to make money for the demand um, for bootleg Wu-Tang Clan shirts and oh, okay. kind of evolved into an extensive collection of designer garments. So if you remember, other hip-hop artists then began making similar ventures. And yes. by the mid-2000s, you had clothing lines basically went hand-in-hand with hip-hop superstardom. So mm-hmm. you had clothing lines by Puff Daddy, Jay-Z, yep. Busta Rhymes, uh, Ludacris, 50 Cent, mm-hmm. and like way more. So the stylized golden W for Wu-Tang became one of the most recognizable logos in music. Uh, This branding was not only emblazoned on clothing, but also other areas of popular culture, including things like skateboards and video games and action figures and all kinds of stuff. So Wu-Wear was eventually discontinued in 2008, but it was revived in 2017 and it's it's around now. Like you can go online and you can go to Wu-Wear for a totally reasonable price. You get a hoodie for like 50 bucks. Oh, we should get them. <laughs> We're going to roll up to Geek Bowl in our in Wu-Tang our Clan hoodies. I mean, yeah. That's where your money's going, folks. <laughs> when you donate to us, it's going to our Wu Wear. All right. So let's actually get into the biographical information about the members of the group. Yes. Okay. So first, Riza. Mm-hmm. He was born Robert Fitzgerald Diggs in 1969. Again, basically the leader of the group. He produced the entirety of Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, and the majority of the tracks on subsequent Wu-Tang albums. Um, Really like a masterful producer. Like everybody just, uh, like especially in the documentary, is just saying like how he had like such great ideas and such Mm -hmm. clear vision. And he had been listening to music for like decades and decades and had these like great ideas of like, what if I took a little piece of this Gladys Knight thing and mixed it Mm -hmm. with the sound of, I don't know, somebody roller skating, like all kinds of great things for like sound mixing. And it was just like a really great ear and a really great mind. So he also ended up producing many of the group members solo efforts. Uh, Rizza had his own studio album in 1998 called Bobby digital in stereo, which was an experimental album based on his hedonistic alter ego named Bobby digital. Um, He also reprised that um, character Bobby digital on an episode of upright citizens brigade for comedy central. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Josh showed it to me. It's re- it was really funny. Um, and again, Riza, another you know thing that he's known as was Prince Rakeem. Oh, okay. He also scored several Hollywood films, um, including Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Oh. He scored the first installment of Kill Bill. Oh. And also Ridley Scott's American Gangster. 
He also wrote the score for the anime series Afro Samurai. Oh, yeah. And in 2012, RZA directed, co-wrote, and had a lead acting role in The Man with the Iron Fists. So... He's like an, he's got a oh, yeah. finger in a lot of pies. Yep. He's doing great. Yeah, doing great. Next up is Jizza, born Gary Grace in 1966. So he's the oldest member of the group as well as the most experienced. Okay. He began rapping in 1976 when hip hop was still a local New York phenomenon. Mm-hmm. He was also the first to release an album, uh, Words from the Genius, in 1991. He's known for his laid-back flow, deliberate style, and complex use of metaphor, containing references to samurai films, chess, and 5 percenter teachings. He is considered to be the wisest MC of the group. Liquid Swords, his second solo album, is often acclaimed as the best Wu-Tang solo project. And again, he's also known as the genius. Mm. Third up, this guy, and we are gonna, we're going to talk more about him later, oh, but yeah, just I a mean, brief overview I'm sure. of Old Dirty Bastard, yes. or ODB. Mm, of course. Um, born Russell Tyrone Jones. Um, he was born in 1968. He is possibly the most eccentric and erratic member mm-hmm. of the group. Um, his wild behavior drew significant attention from the media and the police. He was known for his offbeat rhymes, charismatic wailings, and unpredictable vocal inflections. His stage name, ODB, was derived from the 1980 martial arts film, Old Dirty and the Bastard. Okay. Mm-hmm. ODB was among the most popular members of the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. He had a lot of high sales and a lot of guest spots on other I- albums. Like um, he featured on like a Mariah Carey song, which was like a big deal. Oh my so he was considered very entertaining and provocative. Um, while being profiled for an MTV biography, he oh, took yeah. a limousine with two of his seven children to New York State Welfare Office in order to cash a $375 benefits check. And then there was a lot of backlash yeah. in the media about that. I do remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Dirty Bastard died in 2004 from an accidental drug overdose um, two days before his 36th birthday. Oh, so, my God. Oh, my God. I didn't realize he was so he young. Was young. Uh-huh. Wow. Oh, yes. my gosh. Um, he's also been called... Um, Besides ODB, Dirt McGirt. Yes. And yes. also Dirt Dog. <laughs> How do I know this? How do you know I this? I don't know. Like, I feel Listen like... Listen to a lot of Rockefeller records? I don't think so. Like, I feel like a lot of this, like, just kind of uh, through osmosis, like, in high school. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. I think... I don't know. Maybe I... This is, like, from a past life or something. <laughs> that I listened to a lot of Wu-Tang in my past life. So um, ODB's son, Barson Unique Jones, who was born in 1989, goes by the stage name Young Dirty Bastard, and he has been performing live with the Wu-Tang Clan. Oh, okay. And looks just like him. Really? It's like kind of eerie. That's weird. Yeah. Next, and and I got a little, I got a little soft spot here. This, this guy might, might be one of my faves. Your faves? Okay. Method Man. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> so he was born Clifford Smith in 1971. He's the youngest member of the Wu-Tang Clan and the first to release a Wu-Tang solo album called Tikal, T-I-C-A-L. Okay. Um, in 2017, Method Man revealed on a Viceland talk show that the album's title is an acronym for Taking Into Consideration All Lives. Oh, Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. I mean, But when you see nice it on the spot. album cover, it's like Method Tickle Man. And then it makes it look like it's saying like Methodical Man, which is kind of, oh. which is like cool. Yeah. Yeah. But... So, um, he took his Wu-Tang name from the 1978 film Method Man, which was also called The Fearless Young Boxer. His career has gone on to be one of the most successful of the group, highlighted by platinum sales and a Grammy for I'll Be There For You slash You're All That I Need To Get By with Mary J. Blige. Oh, I remember that song. Yeah. Uh, Method Man is also great, 
great acting career. Yes. He's, um, he's been in How High in 2001, Classic. Garden State in 2004, yes. Venom in 2005, the movie Keanu in 2016. Was oh, that the one about the cat? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And on television, he and frequent collaborator Red Band co-starred on the short-lived Fox sitcom Method and Red. Um, he also had recurring roles in three HBO series as Tug Daniels in Oz, as Melvin Cheese Wagstaff in The Wire, okay. and as Rodney in The Deuce. Okay. <laughs> he once set up the now-defunct WooChess.com, which touted itself as, quote, the world's first online chess and urban social network. I love this. I love it. He's... <laughs> Also, he's he's funny. Is he funny? Oh, he's that's funny. Awesome. Um, so he's also called Meth uh, for Method Man. Of clearly, mm-hmm. uh, Johnny Blaze. Okay. Also, yeah. Tikal. Um, and in 2017, he became the co-host of celebrity battle rap show Drop the Mic with Justin Bieber's wife Haley Bieber uh, as, his, as his co-host. Uh, I feel like he's really there to give the credibility. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and Haley Bieber is there to fill space maybe maybe they're like I mean, we need very we need someone with long hair up here <laughs> i don't know we need someone who's the physical opposite of method man <laughs> and you know what yeah they I did mean, it they did it that's fine <laughs> life is a rich tapestry it's fine all right next is raekwon um he was born Corey woods in 1970 his nickname is the chef because he has lyrical flavor and also apparently he had the ability to cook cocaine into crack rock oh okay at some point Great. in time <laughs> um so his lyrics contain extensive use of new york slang often delivered in an aggressive fast-paced manner he's known for his storytelling about wealth power and prestige derived from the illegal drug trade um his influential solo album was called only built for cuban links it's often credited with initiating the mafioso rap phenomenon of the mid to late 1990s. I do not know why this title is called this. Okay. Only built number four, Cuban links, L-I-N-X. I mean, why? They're, they're on a different level than us. You know oh, what I mean? absolutely. Like, I'm I, not supposed to know why. No, and you know what? I'm perfectly That's comfortable fine. like s- sitting comfortably in my ignorance of this. But it's like, it's like often called like one of the best like rap solo albums That's out awesome. there. Of course. Um, and again, this album is also colloquially known as the purple tape because it has a very distinctly colored cassette tape when it was released. It was oh, on cool. like a purple tape. Um, he also released an album to that in 2009 called Only Built for Cuban Links Part 2. Yeah. Um, and his other nickname is Lou Diamonds. Oh. I don't know. Huh. That's yeah. a nice name. That is a nice name. You could check into a hotel with that. Yeah, Easy. Lou Diamonds. Yeah. All right, Ghostface Killer. Yeah, I love Ghostface Killer. I also love Ghostface Killer. He was born Dennis Coles in 1970. He's known for his distinctive, abstract, energetic, and emotional style of rapping. He had a large role in Ray Kwan's Only Built for Cuban Links, and he later released his debut album, Iron Man, to critical acclaim. Mainstream hip-hop press credits his second album, Supreme Clientele, with Saving the Woo. Mm. He's released 12 solo albums, more than any other member of the group. In the early days of the Wu-Tang Clan, he'd never be seen without a hockey mask on. Oh, okay. Apparently, the real reason for this was because he was wanted by the police in relation to a felony charge, and he didn't want to get caught. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's one way of hiding from the cops in plain so, sight. Yeah. So the cover of Raekwon's um, Only Built for Cuban Links was the first time Ghostface appeared without his mask on, oh my on a cover. So Ghostface Killer has played fictionalized versions of himself on everything from 30 Rock to Walk Hard. 30 Rock, the ghost face, ki- the running ghost face killer joke yeah. in 30 Rock is one of my favorite bits that yeah. they do. He's, it's phenomenal. He's wonderful. Uh, he's a lot of nicknames. Okay. Also called Iron Man, Tony Stark, Starky Love, 
Pretty Tony, Ghostface, and Ghostini. Ghostini. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right. Inspector Deck. That's Inspector with an A-H with an at the A-H. end. A-H. Yeah. Okay. Um, he was born Jason Hunter in 1970. So Inspector Deck is known for his use of metaphors and complicated rhyme schemes. He was a popular guest rapper in 97 and 98. And he's considered by many in the fan base as the standout member on Wu-Tang Forever, though his mm. later solo albums kind of didn't live up to the high expectations that oh, some okay. people had. Um, he's also a successful producer. He provides beats for artists both in and out of the Wu-Tang Clan, including Ghostface Killer, Method Man, Big Pun, Prodigy, and others. Wow. Um, he's also called Rebel INS. Okay. Yeah. There's You God, who was born Lamont Hawkins in 1970. He was... Um, he also ended up having a good solar career. Mm-hmm. Um, he, ha- he has had a relatively low profile in part due to limited exposure because he was incarcerated for most of the recording of Enter the Wu-Tang Clan, 36 Chambers. So he only delivered some short verses on a couple of the songs there. Mm. Uh, but he's known for his bass-like voice and his style of blaxploitation rap. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm, very 70s. And then Master Killer. Okay. Born Elgin Turner in 1969. He was the last member to join Wu-Tang, uh, but was extensively mentored by Jizza during his early days with the group. He was also largely absent on the group's first album, also due to being incarcerated, though he did contribute the classic final verse to the track, The Mystery of Chess Boxing, which, don't worry, I will play you a clip oh, of that I'm later. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, he also had standout verses on Wu-Tang Forever and other members' solo albums. Um, he was the last member to release a solo album called No Said Date in 2004. He's a PETA-endorsing vegetarian. Oh, bless him. And Master Killer gets his name from the 1978 kung fu movie Shaolin Master Killer, also known as the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. Um, okay. And he's also referred to sometimes as Jamal Iref, which is, um, he changed his name from Elgin Turner to Jamel Iref. Oh, okay. And then also, with a little asterisk at the end, we have Capadonna. He was born Daryl Hill in 1969. So he grew up as friends with many of the clan members. And Capadonna made his debut as an affiliate of the Wu-Tang Clan on Raekwon's hit single, Ice Cream. Uh, He made his first appearance on a Wu-Tang Clan album in 1997 on Wu-Tang Forever. And he contributed significantly to the group's third studio album, The W, at which point his appearances were no longer marked with featuring Capadonna as they had been on the previous Mm -hmm. album. So his status as an official member was at one point unclear. While long referred to by both the group and fans as the unofficial 10th member, there was no confirmation on whether he actually became the official 10th member following the death of Old Dirty Bastard in Mm. 2004. In 2014, RZA definitively clarified Capadonna's status as an official member, saying that Capadonna had been an official member since the group's Eight Diagrams album. And Capadonna revealed during a documentary in 2010, um, The Wu-Tang Saga, that his name is an acronym of... Consider all poor people acceptable. Don't oppress nor neglect anyone. I was like, man, that's a lot of words you just fit into your name. (laughs) I mean, if it fits, you know, it sits like a cat in a box. I bet you could do something with that. Yeah, I'm sure you could do something with that. And then sometimes you'll also hear um, people refer to the Wu-Tang Killer Bees. Those are a number of affiliated artists and groups. There's just way too many to name. So oh, like sure. okay. um, people that kind of feature on a song or mm-hmm. like one of the Wu-Tang Clan members features on one of their songs oh, or like okay. they opened for them somewhere or that kind of thing. So they're like, very, it's like affiliated artists like Red Man and Method Man oh, always sure, do yeah. stuff together. So he's considered to be like a Wu-Tang killer bee. But okay. again, there are way too many of them. Yeah, I mean, th- there's already nine, me- ten members yeah. in this group. And I, they are obviously all like very successful in their own right as producers and rappers. And I'm sure, you know, like they've featured on a lot of other people. So I imagine that family 
is very large. Yes. Yeah. They are. Indeed. All right. Now what you've all been waiting for. I'm so excited. The albums and the songs. Yes. So the first album, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers from 1993. It was recorded at Firehouse Studio in New York City and was produced, mixed, arranged, and programmed by RZA and was mastered at the Hit Factory in New York City. Because of an extremely limited budget, um, the group was apparently only able to record in a small and expensive studio. So there were only able to have up to eight of the nine members in the studio at once. So the quarters were frequently crowded. And uh, um, legend has it that to decide who appeared on each song was a kind of forced them to battle rap each other. Okay. <laughs> So the title of the album is partly in reference to the 1978 Kung Fu film, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, also because the Wu-Tang Clan had nine members, each of whom has four chambers of the heart. And 36 chambers is the total of the nine hearts of the members. The story behind the album's iconic cover has also become one of hip hop's favorite mysteries. So the cover of it, there's only six members of the Wu-Tang Clan pictured on it, and all are sporting stocking masks over their faces. So the regular rumor has it that with certain members of the, of the group otherwise inconvenienced for various mm-hmm. reasons, some of the group's management team actually had to step in to take the place for their, um, for their cover shoot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, so a little smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, despite Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers becoming a worldwide phenomenon, its original attack on the charts was... Not so hot. Mm. Um, the album itself scaled only as far as number 41 on the Billboard charts, but the album did eventually get to platinum status in 1995. Yeah. So here's their debut single, Protect Your Neck. I do know this song, I'm pretty sure. So it starts off with sounds of fighting from the kung fu movie Executioners from Shaolin. Okay. Uh, it's a free associative and battle rap featuring eight of the members. And in September 2010, Pitchfork Media included the song at number five on their top 200 tracks of the 90s. Um, and it was slightly changed for the album version from the single version. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's very, it has a very like, early 90s sound yes it does and i feel like it's been in like i've heard it in movies or like it's it's been in the zeitgeist it's a very popular song. yeah yeah okay next up is a song called method man it's really helpful when they when they introduce all of the people's yeah, names when they it. tell you their names first so it, this is method man singing um so it's the b-side to the single for protecting X. so method man again kind of the first successful solo artist it's a very fun song. Okay. Um, it has lots of references to pop culture. It includes references to green eggs and ham and Tootsie Roll Pops. I love it. Tweety Bird. Uh, That's amazing. It's, it's it's a very fun... Like, I was like LOLing when I was listening <laughs> to this song. I was like, this is a very funny song. Julia is a, a Wu-Tang fan now. You're a Wu-Tang Clan fan. I'm a Wu-Tang Clan fan, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> of all the people I know, you you weren't. You I weren't was not ready expecting for that. it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next up is a song called Cream. It's yes. like C dot R dot E dot A dot M. Cream. So that stands for something. Yes. We're, oh, it's great. It's very early nineties. So I'm gonna let them tell you what it stands for. Cash rules everything around me. Yeah. 
It's great. Uh, so it has verses by Raekwon and Inspector Deck. Um, Method Man has the hook. So it has samples of piano riffs and background vocals that come from a chopped up sample of uh, the 1967 record by the Charmels called As Long As I've Got You. So it's like a, an early song of theirs that came out that that started showing their, you know, their sampling mm-hmm. skills. And then another one, another um, hit off this album was Can It All Be So Simple? Okay. This has some rapping from Ghostface Killa and Raekwon, and its lyrics deal with a glorified mafioso lifestyle. This part features samples of Gladys Knight and the Pips' The Way We Were. Oh, okay. So you can kind of hear that. Started off on an island, AK Shallon, rubber wallin', gunshots thrown the phone down. Back in the days I'm eight now. So that's another fun one. This is and this is all on 36 chambers. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are a couple other songs off the album that people did love. They weren't like necessarily like hit singles, but people mm-hmm. love these songs and the group actually made music videos for them. So uh, one is called The Mystery of Chess Boxing. Yes. You ha- I think you mentioned this mm-hmm. before. Yeah. You must think first. Love, love all that like before you move. Kung Fu clips in the front. And immune to nearly any weapon. I mean, I guess I always knew it's that they love to meld like rap Boy, give it to you. and no like an Eastern like mysticism, like, My hip hop will rock and like, yeah, martial arts films of the 70s kind of thing. But I guess yeah. I didn't realize, I thought that was just like their aesthetic. Oh. I didn't realize that it was like deep in like the DNA of their music, yeah. which is actually, which is super cool. Yeah. They're they're very smart. Oh my god! They're just, I was say, they're 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 clearly and what I mean that they are on a different level. I mean yeah. that they are high intellectuals of like a different like level than yeah. than us for sure for sure. And then the other song that I feel like everybody just like automatically knows this when you say the term Wu Tang Clan. Yeah, is the song. Yeah. Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. Ooh, I picked the clean version, so. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we do have an E on our. It's true. So the beginning has that like sample is from the cartoon show Underdog. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. And I had no idea. The song focused aggression and rabble rousing that served as a call to arms for a crew that's ready to take over the world. I love it. They ain't nothing to f with. <laughs> Again, a disclaimer: we are both extremely very white. white, very white. <laughs> so, uh, so that's so. Those are like the songs that you should know from for from their that first debut album. album. Yeah, that, yeah, that were especially popular. But apparently, the whole album just is beginning wonderful. to end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after a string of successful solo projects, the group then got back together for Wu-Tang Forever, which dropped in June 1997, and it debuted as number one on the Billboard charts. Oh, wow. So this year marked the first appearance of the unofficial 10th member, Capadonna. Mm -hmm. So um, Wu-Tang Forever, 1997, debuted at number one. Um, It went four times platinum. The cover shows the Wu-Tang W on a stylized globe with a dark background, and the nine members below that above the phrase Wu-Tang Forever. So their lead single off of that album is called Triumph. Um, it is uh, six minutes long. Wow. It has no chorus. 
It's just a, it's just an intro and interlude by ODB and verses from the other eight members. So wow. it's the it is though Triumph, the only Wu Tang song that features all members. Oh, that's interesting. It is, yeah. And according to the Showtime documentary, it was possibly the first million dollar hip hop music video. Really? Uh-huh. I'm going to go home and watch it. Yeah. Called Triumph. It's very it's another like very like theatrical like Oh yeah. They're on top of a building and there's news crews and helicopters and there's all kinds money of stuff and, happening. Yeah. Diamonds. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Triumph. After Wu-Tang Forever's success, Riza at that point, kind of ceased overseeing all aspects of Wu-Tang product okay. as he had done for the previous five years. He began delegating a lot of his existing role to associates like Oliver Power Grant and his brother, Mitchell Divine Diggs. This move was designed to expand Wu-Tang's reach in the industry and take advantage of the financial opportunities available to the group. Mm-hmm. So the focus of the Wu-Tang empire largely shifted to the promoting of emerging affiliated artists. So okay. members of the of the Killabees, if you will. In 2000, the group got together again for the W, which reached double platinum status. And then um, in 2001, they had Iron Flag, which was certified gold, but had mixed reviews. So first, the W in 2000, um, there was no ODB in the studio because he was currently in jail in California for violating probation. So his vocals were recorded um, by telephones that the inmates used to talk to visitors while in prison. out of here and they use that on the track conditioner i love that yeah so again the w went double platinum um the cover is the wu-tang w which is dark against a lighter background and it has the w superimposed over that Mm -hmm. so the big hit off of the w is called gravel pit um so it's the wu-tang's only top 40 hit in the u.s which got to um so the music video has the wu-tang clan arguing in an elevator like time machine and they accidentally send themselves back to 2 million BC, which looks suspiciously like the set of the movie The Flintstones. Oh, okay. So sure. the gravel pit is a large fancy pit made from stone and bones. It's apparently also a casino with a fountain and Stone Age cars and dancing naked, half-naked women and large dinosaurs. So at the end of the video, Bo Rockhard, who is played by Bokeem Woodbine, the actor, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he's a rival ninja that challenges the Wu-Tang ninjas. So Rizzo leads the ninjas and fights off a horde of rival ninjas attacking the pit. And each Wu-Tang member has a different name in the video. It's so, it's so funny. Um, So Rizza is Bobby Boulders. Meth is Joe Corey. ODB is Old Dirty Blocks. (laughs) I like how they... (laughs) They're like, we already use boulders. What sort of B word that it means? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, Ghostface is named Frank Stoney and Raekwon is Lex Rockhead. Oh, I love this. And You Got is Stone Fingers. And like it comes up on the screen. Like yeah, it yeah. shows them with their like their like Flintstones name. <laughs> it's it's you're like, is this a Wu Tang song? <laughs> <laughs> but when we were watching the documentary and they showed like the clip of that, I was like, this looks like they're in the, the set of like Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas. Yeah. Which was not the of the two Flintstones movies. That was the bad one. I mean, they were both bad, but like the worst one. So I love you, this. If you watch the video and you start hearing like the footsteps of the dinosaurs and stuff, it's it's very funny. But like the song, when you listen to the song like isolated from the music video, yeah. you don't necessarily get all that. No, it doesn't seem like the I mean the song is called Gravel Pit, I guess. But I imagine it's not just like Flintstones references abound. <laughs> no. 
That's awesome. <laughs> so shortly before the release of the W, ODB escaped custody while being transported from a rehab center to oh, a Los no. Angeles court and then was considered a fugitive. Oh, jeez. Um, he appeared at a record release party for the album with his face hidden by an orange parka, <laughs> and he wasn't recognized until he was introduced to the crowd. So with police <laughs> officers present outside, ODB performed briefly and then fled again, fearing capture. Oh, my God. Six days later, he caused a commotion because he was signing autographs in a McDonald's in North Philadelphia. The man can't keep away. No. So unaware of who was causing the commotion, the manager of the McDonald's called the police. And when the officers arrived, ODB mistook them for fans. Oh, no. Until they drew their guns on him. What? And then he fled the McDonald's. Oh, no. (laughs) But it's just a series of unfortunate events. (laughs) It's very, it's... Oh, it's fun to read about later on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So he was... (laughs) So they like caught up to him again. Yeah. Um, he, he was trying to start his vehicle and, mm. you know, they caught him up, up to him. And, and then he presented a fake ID. Oh, no. <laughs> he finally admitted his real identity and then was arrested. arrested. Oh, but geez. he. Wow. He spent a couple of a very weeks, fun like, days, yeah, apparently. Yeah. So. The next release album was Iron Flag in 2001. This uh, made extensive use of outside producers and guests, including Ron Isley and Flavor Flav. Oh, hey. Uh, The cover shows the members dressed in army fatigues in black and white holding up a black and yellow Wu-Tang flag. So it's really um, an homage to the famous 1945 Iwo Jima flag raising photo. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. ODB is completely absent from this album. Again, he had other things yeah, going on. Yeah, he had some stuff going on. Um, so the album's promotion was also kind of low-key, particularly in comparison to the fanfare and and hype that had preceded the release of the group's previous album. So um, kind of the, the single that people know off that is called Uzi, parentheses, Pinky Ring. Mm. So this song has a black exploitation influence atmosphere with a lot of dramatic horn riffs and gritty drums. And you can kind of hear this like funky, like yeah, it has kind of a seventies quality to it for sure. I just heard of my friends, Angela Bassett. Oh, I know. Right. Oh, so good. She's timeless. Mm, so beautiful. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I was laughing for a second, but bringing it back down. Um, on November 13th, 2004, ODB collapsed at Wu-Tang's recording studio on West 34th Street oh in New York City. God. And he was, he was with them? Yeah, he was with them. And he was pronounced dead later that night. Um, the official cause of death was a drug overdose. An autopsy found a lethal mixture of cocaine and the prescription drug tramadol Ugh. in his system. And again, this was just like two days before his 36th birthday. I still cannot believe he was so young. Well, I mean, at that point... I was a young teenager when that happened. Mm. 2004. I was 19. Um, yeah, a young teenager. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, I always assumed, you know, like when you're that age, yeah. anyone over the age of 30 is like, Seems, they're old, yeah. you know. But looking back, like I was, even now, like just until you told me that, I was sure he was at least like almost 50. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> So that's rough. Yeah. So it was, it was really rough. It was oh, really yeah. rough on the members, especially, you know, those that were related to him and those who were, you know, his, they were been best friends for like mm-hmm. two decades now. And so yeah, it was exactly. really rough on some of them. Um, so, you know, they kind of were working on their own solo things mm-hmm. for a while. Um, in 2005, Rizzo released his first book, the Wu-Tang manual, which laid down the Wu-Tang clan slang and terms along with listing their many sources of inspiration, including oh, okay. this is outlined the martial arts, comic books, the nation of gods and earths, and also chess. Of course. 
So in 2007, the group reassembled again to release their fifth album called Eight Diagrams. It included lots of collaborations, um, and the sound veered away from the group's original street sound, but still debuted at number nine on the top R&B hip-hop albums um, on the Billboard 200. Mm -hmm. So it was their first full collaboration since ODB's death. So Eight Diagrams, um, its mm -hmm. title is derived from the martial arts film The Eight Diagram Pole Fighter. The cover shows kind of, um, did you watch Lost at all? I watched the first episode okay. and for some reason couldn't get into it. All right. Well, in the zeitgeist, <laughs> the, the Dharma initiative, like their oh, yeah. like octagon logo. So mm -hmm. it's kind of strange. Like when I'm tr looking at this cover and I'm trying to describe it, it's kind of like a Dharma initiative type logo in the sky that had Wu-Tang W over it and eight members of on the cover above a city skyline and then Wu-Tang eight diagrams. Okay. So it included some posthumous recordings from ODB on the album. Oh, wow. Okay. And RZA used a more experimental orchestral and more, more universal choice of music production for the album. So one one of the standout singles on that is called The Heart Gently Weeps. Mm. So this has, um, it features a sample of the Beatles song While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Yeah. It has appearances of Erica Badu on the chorus. Um, Danny Harrison, who's the son of George Harrison on acoustic guitar. Oh my God. Um, and also John Frusciante of the Red Hot Chili Peppers on lead guitar too. Oh, okay. So yeah, if you watch the the video for this, it's like kind of like a geisha girl kind of like dancing around and mm. then they have this like, you know, you have some strings and this like acoustic parts and then the wrapping over it. It's it's really pretty it soft. There's like a softer quality to this yeah. as opposed to their previous efforts. Yeah. It definitely, yeah. definitely very different. Mm -hmm. In 2013, the group went on to a festival tour to commemorate 20 years since their seminal release. Oh my God. And they yeah. announced their sixth album, A Better Tomorrow. So that dropped in 2014. Um, and after openly vocalizing artistic differences, followed by negotiation and reconciliation, it debuted at number 29 on the Billboard 200. So, A Better Tomorrow, the cover is a collage of famous buildings and skylines from all around the world, and the blue sky has a giant cloud formation in the shape of the Wu-Tang W. Oh, okay. So, um, there, one of the hit songs off that was called Keep Watch. So, you, you can kind of hear the... Um, Again, like back to this like funk street style, and it touches on subjects like police corruption and also um, quote the metaphysical connection between hip hop and a star's life cycle. Wow, so can get kind of deep too, but but yeah, it, it sounds a little more like some of their, some of their earlier. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has the their sound for yeah. sure. So. Maybe even if you don't consider yourself to be super into hip hop or a Wu-Tang expert like me, yeah. um, you might be more aware of the group's seventh album than you realized. Okay. So RZA stated in an interview with Forbes in the late 2000s that they were, quote, about to put out a piece of art like nobody else has done in the history of modern music. We're making a single sale collector's item. Yes, I do know about uh -huh. this. <laughs> so according to members interviewed for the Showtime documentary, this was not meant to be a real Wu-Tang album. It was kind of put together in secret over six years by Wu affiliate and producer Silver Rings. Okay. So the album Once Upon a Time in Shaolin was pressed as a single two CD copy. The album was held in a silver jewel-encrusted box with a wax oh Wu-Tang Clan seal and leather-bound liner notes. In March 2015, Wu-Tang Clan exhibited the album for the only time. The only time. The only time. To a crowd of about 150 art collectors, dealers, and critics in Queens, New York. 
So this album was sold by an online auction startup for $2 million in 2015. It was the most expensive individual album ever sold. Oh my God. A legal agreement with the purchaser stipulates that the album cannot be commercially exploited until 2103, although it could be released free or played during listening parties. Um, in December 2015, it was revealed that the person who had purchased the album was the notorious American oh, businessman I hate Martin Shkreli, referred to by the media as Farmer Bro, also the most hated man in America. The most hated man yeah, in America. He had bought the manufacturing license of the life-saving drug Daraprim, and he upped the price from $13 a pill to $750 a pill. This guy deserves to burn in hell for the rest of Oh, yeah. Of his- he's a real oh, asshole. Oh, he's an asshole. We should, yeah. Oh, um, so upon hearing the news of who had their album, members of the group, shall we say, voiced their discontent with yeah. the sale. Um, and Riza and the Wu-Tang Clan donated the proceeds from the album to several charities. Good. In March 2018, though, a federal court seized all of Shkreli's assets following his conviction for yeah. fraud, including the album Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. So that's currently in the government somewhere. Oh. <gasps> I didn't realize that they just, they still have it as like. Yeah. Oh, once your stuff gets seized, man. Yeah, that's gone forever. Yeah. Ooh. How about that? Library of Congress. Make it free on the Library of Congress website. I want to hear it. (laughs) You heard it here, folks. Lauren's going to start a petition. Petition the government. (laughs) So finally in 2017, a compilation album produced by Mathematics was released called The Saga Continues. So the group name on the album was actually shortened to Wu-Tang instead of Wu-Tang Clan because the album featured all of the members except you, God, because he was currently in a dispute with the group over royalties. So it was a Wu-Tang record, but couldn't be called Wu-Tang Clan without you, God. Um, The cover has a very like cartoony comic book feel to it. It's very distinct looking from -hmm. from all their other albums too. It kind of, um, if you picture like the band Gorillaz, it's kind of like, you know, it's, that's kind of of just what it reminded me of. Mm -hmm. Okay. Some more Wu-Tang trivia. Please. So along with their own clothing line, they also teamed up with Nike for a limited edition shoe in 1999. Only 36 pairs, like the 36 chambers, of the Nike Dunk High LE Wu-Tang were manufactured. They were a two-tone blend of black and goldenrod matching the Wu-Tang logo colorway with the Wu-Tang W logo on the heel and the tongue tag. They were made specifically for the group along with their family and friends. So this is not a model that was ever seen for sale as a new release oh, to the really? public. Okay. So any that were sold at the time had been auctioned off from people who had received their complimentary sneakers. So the Nike Dunk High LE Wu-Tang is one of the most highly sought after models. Currently, the only mint condition for sale is on grailed.com for $18,954. No. What? The sneaker heads must be... And they're size like seven and a half. Like it's not even like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're like teeny weeny. But sneaker heads don't care really. Right. Because they usually don't wear them. They like have them in a vault and they keep them. Yeah. If you got a spare $18,954 laying around, you could be the owner of this pair of uh, mint inbox shoes from 1999. So um, Wu-Tang Shaolin Style, it was the video game released in 1999. It was also released globally as Wu-Tang Taste the Pain. Uh, It used a unique game engine created by Paradox Development, which was originally made for an unreleased game called Thrill Kill, which was noteworthy for allowing up to four players to fight simultaneously on the PlayStation. Oh, wow. Due to the game's graphic depictions of blood and violence, a special Uh code printed on the instruction manual had to be entered within the game to see the full uncensored action. And Activision also released 
a special edition controller for PlayStation in the shape of the characteristic Wu-Tang W. But if you picture that, it's very hard to use as a game <laughs> controller and it's way more of a collector's item. Yeah, than sure. That's something you put on display. You don't actually use yeah. it. Yeah. So Wu-Tang Clan has been honored by New York City with a street corner named after the legendary <gasps> hip hop group in the Park Hill section of their home base, Staten Island. Oh, Staten Island. Um, so the corner of Vanderbilt Avenue and Targi Street was renamed the Wu-Tang Clan District in an unveiling ceremony on May 4th, 2019. Staten Island Councilwoman Debbie Rose said of the occasion, quote, this is a great day where we have an opportunity to honor our own hometown heroes, the young men who put Staten Island on the map internationally. They overcame all types of challenges to not only become rap artists and hip hop artists, but to inspire and challenge the music world. Oh, that's lovely. That's nice. And then finally, uh, the Wu-Tang Clan name generator. Oh, yes. You know about this. this. So um, and we'll share a link to this because it's fun. So um, remember that Donald Glover got his stage name, Childish Gambino, from mm-hmm. the Wu-Tang Clan name generator. Uh, yes. do you, by the way, do you know what his DJ name is? Uh, Donald Glover's? Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. It's Mick DJ. Oh, just Mick DJ? Yeah. Okay. Well, I was like, Donald. All right. You could have done a little better on that. So anyway, I put our names into the Wu-Tang Clan <gasps> okay. generator. Okay. Mine is Tough Leader. Tough is spelled T-U-F-F. I like that. Tough Leader. And yours is Profound Destroyer. <gasps> That's it. That's who we are now. I'm changing my name legally. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Goodbye, Lauren. Hello, Hello Profound, Profound Destroyer. Destroyer. Oh, my gosh. If we were to ever start rapping, which I advi- I don't think we should. <laughs> that, is not, that is not me saying that we should. We should go with that. I mean, right. Don Glover got a lot of, I mean, he's very successful. Yeah. So it's clearly <laughs> lucky. I love those. So in conclusion, I recommend the Showtime documentary. I recommend taking I a really listen to, to like Spotify's like essential Wu-Tang clan. You might as well. Yeah. There's a lot of fun references mm-hmm. and like, it's, you know, very, they've had a, a significant impact on the industry. I love this. I had no idea about a lot of this. Amazing. They sound like incredible guys with great music. Woo. We're holding up. We're, we're holding, holding up, up we're our doing hands the in, the, in the Wu-Tang sign. <laughs> so speaking of the Wu-Tang sign, uh-huh. our quiz is called Lego My Logo. This okay. is a quiz on iconic brand logos. Question one. Named for the inventor of vulcanized rubber, which American multinational corporation features what they call the wing foot symbol in the middle of the company's name? The symbol is better known as the winged foot of Mercury or Hermes. Question two, which clothing retailer fell into a trap in 2010 when it attempted to relaunch its iconic logo by minimizing the blue box and using the font Helvetica? Question three, famous carmaker BMW didn't always make automobiles. In fact, the company was founded in 1916 to manufacture aircraft engines. Their famous logo, a circular rondelle with four quadrants, is based on the flag of what land? Question four. One of luxury watchmaker Rolex's slogans is a crown for every achievement, which makes sense when you look at their logo. Tell me, how many points are on the Rolex crown? Question five. Speaking of Swiss companies, which food and drink conglomerate, the largest in the world, has a logo depicting a mother bird feeding two baby birds? Question six. Which online platform's now ubiquitous logo was, appropriately, originally named after Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics? Question seven. A very simple question. Picture the Olympic rings. What color is the center ring on the top row? 
Question eight. The icon for a company founded as Blue Ribbon Sports a few years earlier, which now multi-billion dollar company logo was drawn in 1971 by Portland State University graphic design student Carolyn Davidson, who was paid just $35 for her design. Question nine. By now, trivia folks and coffee lovers alike are well aware that Starbucks' logo is a two-tailed siren whose appearance has changed slightly over the years. While the logo gained a little modesty in 1987, covering up the siren's bare breasts, it also adjusted the wording surrounding the mermaid. From 1971 to 1987, the words around the siren read, Starbucks, coffee, tea, and what? And finally, question 10. Salvador Dali famously created the brightly colored Daisy logo for what sweet product, whose name is derived from the Spanish verb for to suck? I'll give you about a minute to think, and then we'll be back with your answers. I have not listened to two through 10 because, <laughs> you, <laughs> because I could not for the life of me. And you're going to read the question number one for me again. And it's just going to pop into my head and I believe it. And I, I, I just, I know it. It's going to happen. Okay. <laughs> question one. Okay. Named for the inventor of vulcanized rubber, which American multinational corporation features what they call the winged foot symbol right in the middle of the company's name? The symbol is better known as the winged foot of Mercury or Hermes. I can see it in my brain. Okay. It's red. No. So, no? Goodyear. Yes. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it would come to she me. She just had the look like when you drop a baby, like the, that like panic look, or the baby thinks you're going to drop them, that that like panic look right before you said Goodyear. I'm proud of you. <laughs> it was like a spirit came over me and Goodyear was forced out of my just mouth. just like smacked yeah. into you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. Per the company's website, quote, the idea of speed had much to do with Goodyear's selection of the symbol for the wing-footed Mercury was regarded as a fleet herald of good news. But it is as a herald or carrier of good tidings to users of Goodyear products everywhere oh that the wing foot now stands in the minds of people of the world. Okay. <laughs> their marketing team yeah, really, really right. earn in their, their paycheck. It's a tire, everybody. Chill out. All right. So for the first time, Lauren, question <laughs> yeah. two. I, I love this. I, it's so fresh. Which clothing retailer fell into a trap in 2010 when it attempted to relaunch its iconic logo by minimizing the blue box and using the font Helvetica? It's a clothing company, yes. you said. 
Not a designer no. company. Okay. Clothing company, minimizing the blue box and using Helvetica. Mm-hmm. It fell into a trap. Fell into a trap. Oh, uh, the Gap. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, Gap, yes. After surprising public backlash, the brand reverted to its previous logo within eight days. Wow. So oh, my God. Originally, the company had wanted the new logo to coincide with what it says was its updated image, including having more modern designs of jeans, pants, and other clothing. But they put out the new logo without explaining any change, and it oh led boy. to um, the only two emotions that humans need, <laughs> anger and confusion. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. What? Why I don't <laughs> yeah. recognize? They were like, "This is, <laughs> this is awful." Like it, like because it was 2010, so it was like social media was immediately like, "Yeah, what the?" I was gonna say like, I don't remember this at all, but clearly, like, when you it take happened a look at a little it over than a week, yeah, be like, <sighs> yeah, it's bad. Yes. All right. Question three: Famous car maker BMW didn't always make automobiles. In fact, uh, the company was founded in 1916 to manufacture aircraft engines. Their famous logo, a circular rondelle with four quadrants, is based on the flag of what land? What land? Mm-hmm. Swaziland? Is that is that a place? Do you think that the BMW I know. was made I'm in sorry. Swaziland? I shouldn't. This is the first time I'm hearing this question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. What's Where's BMW from? Germany. Okay. What's it stand for? It stands for... Beimler, Beimler? Why did that come from? Big, muscly. <laughs> no, I don't actually. I I think I've heard what BMW stands for like once in my okay. life. Bachman. Well, nope, that's Brockman Turner Overdrive. Uh, <laughs> what's the logo look like? It's it's you know it's a circle uh-huh. with like blue and black, right? No. Oh shoot. <laughs> Like, All right, this in the circle is, is blue and white. Blue and white, okay. yes, okay. What's blue so where's and white? that from? Ooh, oh, boy. Now are we doing flags? <laughs> I didn't know this was a quiz about flags. It's not flags. a country. Oh, it's not a country? It's not a country. It's a land. It's a land? <laughs> Just tell me. <laughs> I'm so confused. Bavaria. Oh, yeah, I wasn't going to get BMW there. BMW stands for Bayerisch Motorenwerk or Bavarian Motorworks. Okay. <laughs> Steve will know that one. Yeah, Steve will know. He'll um, be mad at me. So but. some claim that the logo is a portrayal of the movement of an aircraft propeller with white blades cutting through a blue sky. Okay, yeah. But that didn't appear in advertisements until several decades after the company was founded. So okay. I have heard that. Yeah. So okay. it's it makes more sense that it would be based on the flag of Bavaria. So when sure. you go to like Oktoberfest and all of the backgrounds and the pennants and stuff or everything are just that diagonal like blue and white checkerboard that's the flag of bavaria oh oh i guess i never really thought about it i just you know i was happily munching on my pretzel and my schnitzel you know (laughs) we missed oktoberfest this year by the way i know next year next time question four okay One of luxury watchmaker Rolex's slogans is a crown for every achievement, which makes sense when you look at their logo. Tell me, how many points are on the Rolex crown? Okay. Because of my quiz next week, I did recently just look at the Rolex, and that's not a a spoiler, Uh the Rolex logo. Uh And I'm going to say four. Is it four? The answer is five. Damn it. 
So in 1903, Swissman Hans Wilsdorf partnered with his brother-in-law, Alfred James Davis, to start a watch company. And they initially named their company after themselves, Wilsdorf and Davis, but changed the name in 1915 to Rolex. Its logo's five points mirror the five letters of the company name that are frequently printed below it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, question five. Speaking of Swiss companies, which food and drink conglomerate, the largest in the world, has a logo depicting a mother bird feeding two baby birds? Uh, I know this one. That's Nestle. Nestle. Yeah. Uh, It means little nest in German. Oh. And in 1868, Henry Henri Nestle incorporated that into the company's logo to protect his product, which was a milk-based baby food from imitators. So it was basically one of the first things that it was like, "Mm, I'm going to make this logo so that people know that they're actually looking at the real product. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Question six, which online platform's now ubiquitous logo was appropriately originally named after Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics? Ubiquitous, uh, Online. Did I use too many? No. Too many adverbs in this? <laughs> no, I'm just, again, this is the first time I'm hearing this. So um, it's not Google, obvs, right? Or is it Google? It's not Google. No, okay. That's what I thought. Um, something online. Uh, who's online? Lots of people. Facebook. <laughs> You know, lately... If you need to go, like, load your dishwasher or, like, change wow. your load of laundry over wow. while Lauren names Ooh. all of the internet. <laughs> wow. You know what? Lately, she has been so frustrated with me during these quizzes because she spent so much time on these, and I just go, through the whole thing. And I just know that she's writing these quizzes, and she's like... So help me, Jesus, if she doesn't get this this week, I'm going to burn this whole podcast to the ground. The logo was named after Larry Bird. Larry Bird. Tweet. Twitter. Twitter! (laughs) I realized after (laughs) after the last time I gave you a quiz, I was like, oh, I have to stop her. No, you 100% have to stop me. Because I will immediately be like, no. (laughs) I re-listened to the part where we talked about uh, the Greek tradition of hanging a a vegetable on the door at New Year's and... Like, just laughed and laughed and laughed out loud. Because <laughs> I did say onions, right? I did. <laughs> I said onions. So, the answer is Twitter. The answer yes. is Twitter, yes. Uh, so, Larry the Bird launched in 2006. It was um, originally just a piece of clip art that was purchased for $15 on iStock from the designer Simon Oxford. Larry underwent a few changes over the years, and its current logo is actually just referred to as the Twitter Bird, but for, mm. you know... For a good amount of time, it was actually Larry. Larry. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Question seven. A very simple question. Picture the Olympic rings. What color is the center ring on the top row? Center ring on the top row. Is it red? It is not red. Damn. Okay. I'll just give you the answer. Yeah, it's black. Black. Okay, I thought black was on the the far left. Anyway. The yeah. the amazing trivia podcast, Good Job Brain, mm-hmm. taught me a very strange mnemonic for remembering this. Ooh. But I always remember it. It's very, it's, I don't know. It is it is weird when you hear it, but hopefully this will yeah. help you. So their mnemonic from left to right, that includes so alternating like top row, bottom row, top, bottom, yeah. top, is bludgeoning your bladder gets red. <laughs> so the first is bludgeoning, B-L-U, for blue. blue. Oh, okay. Y for yellow, mm-hmm. for under your. 
bladder is BLA for black because it's kind of hard to make a mnemonic when you have two words that start with, with the, the same first yeah. two letters. Mm-hmm. So bludgeoning your bladder gets red. So it goes blue, yellow, black, green, red when you zigzag. Interesting. That's very good. Um, but I you, remember it. Yeah. Thank you. Good job, Brain. And thank you, There's Julia. Question eight. The icon for a company founded as Blue Ribbon Sports a few years earlier, which now multi-billion dollar company logo was drawn in 1971 by Portland State University graphic design student Carolyn Davidson, who was paid just $35 for her design. Um, I think I read an article about this years ago. Is it the Nike swoosh? You got it. Yes. Yes. So um, in 1971, the brand expanded from just importing to also producing sports shoes. They established the Nike brand as we know it today. Um, It's curious to know that the Nike founder, Philip Knight, originally found the now famous swoosh symbol trivial, saying he wasn't a big fan of the design, but thought it would grow on him. He was inspired by the um, Greek goddess Nike, and Davidson wanted to convey her unearthly speed and movement through the emblem. In September 1983, Knight gave Davidson a golden swoosh ring with an embedded diamond and 500 shares of Nike stock, which have since split into 32,000 shares to express his gratitude. And Davidson claims to this day that she is not a millionaire but lives comfortably. So, Well, he made up for it. Yeah, he made up for it. Yeah, it wasn't like a ripoff thing. Good, good. I'm glad for that. All right, question nine. By now, trivia folks and coffee lovers alike are well aware that Starbucks's logo is a two-tailed siren whose appearance has changed slightly over the years. While the logo gained a little modesty in 1987, covering up the siren's bare breasts, it also adjusted the wording surrounding the mermaid. From 1971 to 1987, the words around the siren read Starbucks, coffee, tea, and what? Um, is it? Is there an and in there? No. It's So it's just three yeah. things. Coffee, tea, blank. Um... Uh, I, I have the feeling that it's something like C related, like, like kind of like archaic C related. So like goods are like the C, the C, how about the C? Is it goods? <laughs> <laughs> You're on the right track. Okay. It's spices. Spices. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I have a vague recollection mm-hmm. of it being like, yeah, it was like a brown logo then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the, the siren was done from like a woodcut that they said was either from like the 15th or 16th century. Oh my God, that's cool. Mm. Um, so for more than a decade, the Pike Place Market storefront in Seattle sold only bulk coffee, tea, and spices. Okay. And employees offered the occasional sample from a coffee press. Um, and according to the Starbucks corporate website, the Pike Place flagship store is one of the only Starbucks locations in the world that does not serve food. <gasps> the original lease stipulated that food could not be served and that tradition is continued today. Huh. That's interesting. So if you're if you're walking around Seattle doing your tourist thing and you want to mm-hmm. go to the original Starbucks, don't you, think you can grab your lunch there. Do not think that you can grab a scone no. or or a for, heaven forbid a cake pop. Oh my gosh! No, of course not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Finally, question ten. Salvador Dali famously created the brightly colored Daisy logo for what sweet product whose name is derived from the Spanish verb for to suck? Uh, that's a chupa chup. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Those are chupa chips. Yes. And also, Dolly also suggested that the logo be placed on top of the lollipop wrapper instead of the side so that it would always be seen intact on display oh. in stores. Clever. How about that? Hmm. Great job, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Julia. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so now it's time for our, our recurring segment of 2020. Yeah. Is where we talk about 
Germs Corner. I almost missed the song. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed last week's Germs Corner. And if you didn't, uh, here's a new one. And if you don't like this, too bad. It's happening for probably the rest of this year. You're going to learn so much about Hawaii this year, <laughs> y'all. Um, so Aialani Palace, which is the royal residence of the rulers of the Kingdom of Hawaii that began with Kamehameha III through Queen Liliuokalani, um, Ailani Palace had electric lights before the White House did. Get out. And they are super proud of that. Yeah, I would be too. That's awesome. Also, remember that it is the only royal palace on U.S. soil. That's true. Ailani Palace. Yeah, you taught us that in the uh, Hawaii episode. Yep. So that was Germ's Corner this week. That was Germ's week. Corner. Thank you. Thank you, Germ. Thank you, Julia. Uh, uh, thanks so much for listening to this week, you yeah. guys. Uh, please, you know, rate, review, and subscribe. We've been getting... Uh, a lot of new listeners. So um, head on over to your favorite podcast app and, uh, you know, download us and subscribe. Yes. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. And uh, if you're going to Geek Bowl, let oh. us know. Uh, we got, oh my God. There's like, some fun stuff in store. There are store. some developments. I'm very, very excited. excited. We, we can't can, announce it. No, we can't say anything. I don't think we should say no, anything. But, but everyone, be excited. Yeah, but you should definitely start getting excited right now. <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.